0: I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is Phil Hellberg of Hellberg Barbecue. In this interview, we'll talk about his recognition as one of the state's top 50 pitmasters and how the Texas barbecue scene itself is evolving. I don't know if you've noticed, but themes seem to be back in full swing around town with regular weekly and monthly events. Tonight's First Friday downtown. Tomorrow, Baylor has their first home opener football game. The Bears are coming off the best season in school history and picked to win the Big 12 Conference for a second consecutive year. Kickoff is set for 6 o'clock tomorrow night at McLean Stadium. The Bears are hosting the University of Albany. And not happening in Waco, but a Labor Day weekend staple in McLennan County is West Fest. The parade is tomorrow morning at 10, and the music kicks off tonight. There's a variety of game tournaments slated and guaranteed good food and carnival. You can find more information at westfast.com. We'll be back to talk with Phil Helberg right after the Business Review.
1: The Driving Question. I'm CJ Jackson, and this is the Business Review. There's an important question you should be asking yourself. Authority on Habits and Wealth Creation, Tom Corley, explains what this question is and why it will steer you toward success. Most successful people, especially entrepreneurs, they have a vision of their future selves and their future lives. A vision actually gives you a clear idea of where you wanna go and who you wanna be. Your vision, it reveals your dreams. In order to realize those visions, you have to accomplish or realize dreams. Now every dream, behind every dream are a number of goals. So what, what is one thing you can do every day that uh, will actually help you the most in your life, keep you moving forward? When you do anything, uh, gr- like growth habits, or re- when you read, when you educate yourself self-education, uh, when you pursue goals, pursue dreams, when you're growing and moving forward, well, that, that's an investment in your future self. Corley explains that when you realize your vision, The dreams and goals become clear. Then as you meet your goals, your vision becomes your reality. So that vision helps you climb the ladder in the right direction. You know, it's not monkey bars, you're not all over the place. You're going in uh, the direction of your vision. At the beginning of every day, the, the question you should be asking yourself is, what can I do today that will make me proud of myself, that will benefit the future me? The Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University.
0: You can hear The Business Review each week on KWBU during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Please join me in welcoming Phil Helberg to the studio and to Downtown Depot. Glad to have you, Phil. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about
2: your Waco history and what has you in the area? Yeah, so I had a couple of stepsisters attend Baylor University, Graduated in fifteen and sixteen, and at the time I was working on a cruise ship, actually in the Pacific Ocean in Hawaii. That was where I met my wife, Yvette. Uh, her and her family came on board as passengers, and is she Hawaiian? No, okay. she's uh, she's half Filipino, so she, she does could, have a very exotic look about. She her. She could easily be yeah. And when she was there, and they were there, there. Well, first of all, there are a lot of Filipinos in the in the in Hawaii. But yeah, she would get mistaken for a local too. But uh, yeah, so that was how I met her. But when I was done with Ship Life, moved in with her Southern California, she was finishing up her degree at Biola University. And I, the more I did a lot of traveling, I was like 19, 20 years old, and um, really just had just kind of gotten in touch with my spirituality and was like had this wanderlust and everything. The more I traveled, the more I was like, Texas is home. Texas is where it's at. It's where I want to be. And uh, so we would take a lot of road trips back to Texas and um, meeting up with family was a big part of that. So, you know, we'd hit the family reunion and, you know, visit Waco, visit the the siblings and whatnot. And uh, I didn't, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention when we were visiting through here because I just never, ever thought it would be my future home but she really loved it and it reminded her from where she's from she's from a small uh, farm town just south of Fresno she grew up on a on a farm out there and so she liked the size of Waco and the like proximity how you can be 20 minutes from downtown Waco and be like in the middle of nowhere on a ranch you know she really liked that aspect of it. Where I'm from in Houston, it's not like that, you know, from downtown to get out to the country, you're talking at least like an hour. So she was like, you know, it's a good sized city. Um, you know, you can get out of it pretty quickly if you want to feel like you're away from it. And I was like, you know, that's a good point. And we started looking at, um, we started looking at moving out here right after we got married. Um, we were already kind of on the, on the path to doing barbecue. And we, we knew that, Um, If we were if we really wanted to get on the map, you know, finding some success in central Texas would would get us there quick just because it's it's like that New York saying, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere with barbecue. I think that applies here.
0: So you said you had been on the path. So is this when you're in California, you were kind of business planning or how how much of a fully formed idea of what you would eventually build into Hellberg Barbecue. How much of that was in your mind in California, and how much did you have to create once you actually decided to move to Texas?
2: It definitely changed. Um, we originally I, I wasn't even planning in, uh, on doing you know on doing it commercially. Um, how it came about is I, I'm just an obsessive person, and when I when I get into something, I go all in. So I was cooking in the backyard just as a homesick Texan. Um, and then one thing led to another, we get asked to serve barbecue out at a sporting event and then we get asked to do, you know, cater somebody's birthday party. And it's just, that's just kind of how it happened. We just got asked to do various things. And then that gave me the idea that maybe we can do, we, we can do a business with this. Um, and I was taking, I was taking accounting classes at the time and we did a, uh, we had a group project in my 1B managerial accounting course uh where you had to create like a budget and a uh a business plan for a fictitious business and Yvette and I were already kind of working on this um just i mean we were like 22 23 years old like nothing to lose so figured you know why not and uh I convinced my my classmates that were in my group to just like use this this model of a business we were already kind of where i was just working on a lot of food costing stuff because people wanted us to do their catering for this that and the other so i had to figure out what to actually charge right so i had a lot of food costing done already and they were like whether they were actually interested in it or they just wanted to piggyback off of some work that was already done and figured that would be the path of least resistance they went for it and so We ended up, it ended up being like, you know, our group project. And I actually cooked a brisket and like cut it and served it while we were presenting. So it was an easy, easy A there. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, we were, we were for sure wanting to come to Texas, come back really just because like as soon as we got married, I was, you know, if we were going to have a family, my kids were going to be Texans, non negotiable. So that was, that was like my hard line. But we also knew that. You know, with us being as young and broke as we were at that time, like there's no way we were ever gonna get it off the ground there in Southern California. And we also didn't have a network there either. I mean, we didn't have a network here, but at least it was a lot cheaper to get started than over there. We just saw a lot of restaurants go in and out of spaces down there incredibly quick and so we were like yeah I don't think that's the best with no experience you know neither of us had any experience owning a business before running a restaurant so does good barbecue exist in southern California it does now There, at the time that we were getting started doing like pop-ups and and catering and whatnot and so
0: what year would this have been
2: 2016 2017 we, there were a few other um kind of like illegitimate backyard pop-ups going on just because at that time the health department hadn't got on board with offset wood burning smokers yet. And so everyone that was doing it like the right way, wasn't able to do it legit yet. And we were not going to be the, 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 uh, trailblazers to, to get them on board with that. Like no one knew who we were, you know, uh, we were young and no one would take us seriously or anything. So, I mean, like I tried having some conversations with some health department officials and it just, everything went way over their head. And, um, and I guess some, some people that are from down there that had already been working on the been doing their barbecue pop ups that I you know, either they have families or they've grown grown up and lived there their whole life and it makes total sense for them to be the ones to like really push the issue. For us it was like, well, I don't really want to stay here long term anyway, so I'll just move home and do it there where it's already like there's a whole separate section of the Texas health code for barbecue pits, you know. So we we're like, <laughs> this is just is where we want to be anyway so we might as well pack it up and move it over there and and do it there but yeah there are a few places down there now one in particular was ironic i used to teach part-time for an after-school program and uh one of the schools i taught at the probably the most well-known like craft barbecue joint in southern california is right around the corner from that school i used to pass by there all the time and i know the guy it's called heritage barbecue and um San Juan Capistrano, and they're getting ready to open another one, I think, close to San Diego. And it's they've done incredibly well. Danny's a you know classically trained chef, and he's worked in kitchens for a long time, and their menu is amazing, and their pl- venue is beautiful. I mean, everything about it is like they really went for it and nailed it. So I'm happy for them.
0: Your managerial accounting counterparts and you and Yvette had put together this little sample budget for the project you had ulterior motives and you're putting together your pro forma for a legitimate business you were looking to start. What were the things when you think back to 16, 17, as you were really getting this rolling, what are the things that were totally surprising to you? Like from a theoretical perspective, doing it in the class, oh yeah, this is what it's going to be. But when you actually opened up the business, what were some of those big takeaways? And especially for people who are listening to this, a lot of people can dream up an idea but the implementation of that idea is the tough part. So what kind of uh, suggestions would you have or advice or unique things that y'all ran into can you share?
2: Yeah, I I think it's funny cuz in the beginning we were both in business school of some sort and then, you know, like uh, the further we got into really doing this full-time, Yvette ended up kind of abandoning her MBA cuz she was like I'm learning more doing it here than I am like just learning about it theoretically. But I think the biggest thing that caught us off guard was we weren't planning. I think in the beginning we, in the beginning we were planning on being successful and then it got really hard for us for the first like nine months or so. And so all of our future plans of like what we're going to do when we reach certain milestones kind of went out the window because it was like, we just, we don't even know if we're going to survive doing this. I was like coming home from working cooking sixteen hour days to like look on Indeed for jobs because I was really we were running out of money we just kind of put all our life savings into getting this off the ground and and it was not looking like it was gonna sustain um, and then we had a couple of big breaks like with Texas Monthly and everything that turned I mean that turned everything around uh, for us and so when we started. When we, you know especially when we moved from trailer to brick and mortar we were just entering a whole new arena of like now we're ordering from distributors instead of just going and shopping for all the supplies that we're getting and we got to learn how to work with reps and how to work around case minimums and things like that and how to really track our food cost and and things so i don't know um it's like the last four years have been have moved so quickly I don't even know like what advice I would give my former self um, because everything has just been like quite literally trial by fire. <laughs> but I think just, ha- you know, being able to take a step back and have like a very sobering, humble, like honest viewpoint of like where you're at in your business journey and, and understanding that that doesn't mean that it's going to be that way forever. And that although it's like in the beginning, it may be very difficult and you're putting in a lot of hours and you're literally doing everything, you know, already be thinking about how am I going to train people when I start bringing on a staff? Cause that was a huge mistake. And we've made every mistake in the book when it comes to staffing and, um, hiring the wrong people and, um, you know, just or just hiring people that we thought were cool or, or whatever that we, we got along with, but we had no idea of their work ethic or what a working relationship with them would be like. And there's no accountability in systems or anything like that. And we're having to rely on people to kind of help us build those. Um, and, and at the same time, like still maintain a position of like, we're the ones here in charge, you know, but it's very clear and obvious that we're learning all this stuff as we go, you know? So I, we were in a pretty unique situation with that <laughs> like i guess i guess i would have advised my former self to you know manage a restaurant for a year or two before i go into like hiring people without any management experience so i've had to learn a lot of those m- mistakes the the expensive and hard way
0: you had mentioned the texas monthly magazine mm-hmm. and what you're alluding to is daniel vaughn is the editor of barbecue and he puts out his historic top 50 barbecue joints in the state. So Hellberg is one of them. Guest Family Barbecue is another one. What did the barbecue snaw run into when he came to Hellberg and you guys give him his platter? What were the things that stuck with him about Hellberg or what makes Hellberg unique if we have listeners who haven't ever been to Hellberg?
2: Yeah, I would say, so the first time he came, um, it was about four years ago uh, this month. or Yeah, it was August of 2018. And... The thing that stuck out to him the most was our turkey because we did the pesto stuff turkey. And that was like, you know, pretty much everything else on our menu was pretty standard. We were just trying to execute really well, like at a very high level and not try and completely reinvent the wheel, especially being in, in Waco. Like we're not in Austin, right, where we're, we're the, the market here is, has been made used to craft barbecue for you know more than a decade we're still kind of us and guest family are really still kind of laying the groundwork for people understanding like what what we're about and how this is different than the barbecue that they grew up with you know but at that point in time that was the one thing that stuck out our on our menu as unique and it was enough to get us on the uh the 25 best new and improved joints list that following year so that's that's one in 2019. That was like our, you know, our big break, I guess, was, um, and I'm, I didn't even know this list existed. Um, I was really confused when Texas Monthly called me in March of 2019 and, and asked to set up a, a photo shoot for a photographer to come out. And um, then I found out that, so the, the top 50 comes out every four years. In between there, they do what they call a midterm list, where since, especially since Aaron Franklin changed the game completely back in 09, there has been this tidal wave of barbecue joints opening in Texas and beyond and so in order to keep up with the the rapid growth and how new people are coming onto the scene and making a difference and everything and being able to give those places the spotlight that they deserve even though you know it's still a couple years out from that top 50 list you know they may not make it to that point where they're even eligible to get on that list because we have seen a lot of places open and close in the last just the four years that we've been in business so I understand why they do it and I'm grateful that they do it because we were definitely one of those places that would not have made it
0: it propped you up it kept you yeah guys going. we
2: would not have made it um long term and, and and granted what it really did for us is it just showed us how much we were the problem because up until that point, it was like, well, if we only had more sales, if we only had more customers, and then post top 25 new joints list, May of 2019, we start getting all this business. Now we have the lines. Now we have the people waiting for us to open. We have, you know, the, the cash flow coming through, and we're still not making money. And then that was like, that was the big moment for us where, you know, we, we sent somebody to go get ice on a random day. Um, this is like, we've got the brick and mortar open at this point and the card declines because we have, we don't have enough money to buy ice <laughs> for our Coke machine that day. And that was like when we went home and had a really hard talk with each other about what needed to change and, and how we needed to, cause we're also new parents at this point in time. Our, our son Wayne was about nine months old at the time. And so like, there are certain things that we had to do that first year. Um, that we had to do because we were brand new parents. You know, we definitely gave up control of certain things before we should have, and handed things off to people that we felt knew probably better than us at that time, based on their experience. But they they didn't see the things on the back end, you know. And at that point in time, we still kind of had our foot so much in the day to day operations of just making the restaurant run that we didn't really have the time. To then spend on the back end, making sure that the numbers look good and that everything's working together and it's efficient. And oh, by the way, you have a nine month old at the same time, you know? So,
0: yeah, it is a crazy amount of hats that an owner of a business yeah. is required to wear. That's why a lot of people go to franchising. You can choose the yeah. part of the business you want, the franchisor handles the others, but in your position, yeah, you got to know accounting and you got to know how to make that smoke ring mm-hmm. and you got to know how to tend the fire perfectly and what should be in the deadly case today and how do we vacuum seal this stuff. So it's it's a ton of knowledge that you've built over just the last four years. We're hearing from Phil Hellberg. He's the pit master over at Hellberg Barbecue. You had mentioned 2009, Aaron Franklin of Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, that he had changed the game. For us who are not immersed in this barbecue world – What's different about barbecue now than 10 years ago? What sort of evolutions have happened in barbecue?
2: It mostly it comes down it it really just comes down to attention to detail. So whereas, you know, prior to the the era that Aaron Franklin ushered in, you know, like it, it had basically been widely agreed upon that Lockhart was the capital for barbecue in Texas and just for great barbecue in general. And they're cooking on old brick pits. And it's very much so, you know, they're, the the essence of barbecue. Like it was born out of meat markets with, you know, little or no refrigeration, poor preservation techniques. So they take the tough cuts of meat, like brisket, that nobody really knew to do anything with, salt it, smoke it, and then sell it just to prevent waste from happening. And sausage making was also really important to those business models, and so it was kind of more of an afterthought. Whereas now it's like we're making barbecue on purpose <laughs> instead of instead of just like, well, we've got this meat that's going to go bad unless we do something with it. so But we very much so carry that mindset into everything that we do and that like we don't want anything going in the trash. So that's why we make sausage, you know. And that's what's different, I would say, also about like craft barbecue is, um, are you familiar with like, I'm sure you are, with the different waves of, of coffee, right? Like there's first, second, third wave coffee, you know, like all of our nice roasteries that we have here in Waco, like Pinewood and you know, Native Sons and all those guys are third wave coffee. Barbecue, I would say like first wave is like your Lockhart places where they were just doing it super old school. They were doing it out of necessity. And then when it became commercialized and you get all these chains opening up like Dickies and Rudy's, that would be what I would call like second wave. So they're they're not making their sausage there. You know, they're they're trimming the briskets the absolute least amount possible for cost savings cooking that in smokers that do most of the work for them to save labor because tending a fire for 18 hours is you know costs a lot in labor it doesn't take a genius to figure that out and yeah and then so you're not making pickles you're not you know as as much it's a the passive path of least resistance sides out of a can all that kind of stuff and then craft barbecue comes along aaron franklin comes along choosing to buy prime briskets instead of like just using the cheapest you know, toughest cut of meat possible and making the most of what you can. It's, it's no, we're going to go out and find the best possible ingredients that we can find and make and see what we can do with that. And then we're going to use every bit of it because it's so expensive. And, you know, you can't afford to throw away trim off of a $5 pound brisket, you know, if you want to make any money, especially when you cut that brisket out of the package, it might be 12 pounds. And by the time you're just trimming the excess fat off of it, that would make it unpalatable to the average consumer. If it, if it were left on, you know, you're losing 25% of the cut of meat right there that you can't get back. There's nothing you can do with just straight fat, you know? So, well, there's limited things you can do with it. Go fry some things. Yeah. That's what we do. I mean, <laughs> we, we render it in the tallow, but But yeah, I mean, it's, it's going and finding the best possible ingredients, doing everything from scratch as much as possible, a lot of pride in, in sausage making. And, you know, that's become its own creative outlet for a lot of people, myself included. I actually enjoy making sausage more than I do cooking briskets just because it's a blank slate. You can, you know, do different proteins in there, different flavor profiles, all that different kind of stuff. So.
0: From my vantage point, if those are the three phases and you know the third wave of barbecue has been Aaron Franklin and using more premium meats, it seems to me, just looking at that top 50 list from the barbecue snob, that we might have entered or are entering a fourth phase of this where barbecue is seeing a lot more multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. And like I've seen a ton of Mexican and barbecue fusion places. Uh, there's a place up at DFW, Hurtado mm-hmm. Barbecue. But it seems like barbecue itself, which was probably outside of Tootsie, it yeah. was something that was dominated by male pitmasters yeah. for most of the century. And now there's so much more representation. It's not just this politically correct thing, but right. it's people who are bringing legitimately different flavors. Like at Helberg, you guys have been doing this bracket of different, different bacon wing flavors. <laughs> and one of, I mean, the the ones on there like Filipino adobo spice. And, yeah. Honey Sriracha. Like, I was impressed by how many multicultural flavors I find at Hellberg, and I would assume that that's happening in the barbecue world in general.
2: Definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean, everybody's really, especially now that, you know, the 2013 list and the 2017 list, those were like top 50, Texas monthly top 50 lists, is what I'm referring to. Those were really when they were building the base of like, okay, now there's a lot more places than just Franklin that have great brisket and great ribs and great sausage. And so like that Texas Trinity went, it leveled up for sure. And now there's not a single place on on the the 2021 list that you go to that you can get bad brisket at everywhere. It's great. And so it's a combination of you need to do something new and different and exciting if you want to get noticed because just replicating the same things isn't enough anymore Um, especially depending on what market you're in. Like you can't just go to Austin and open a Franklin copycat. It's not going to survive. You got to offer something new. You got to bring something new to the table. And people are just bringing their own cultural experiences to the table. Like people that grew up in, you know, Hispanic households, like, you know, like Isol and Joe or uh, yeah, Isol and Joe down at 2M or Miguel Vidal at Valentina's. They're just bringing their heritage into it. Like they grew up cooking a certain way. And so they're applying that to this craft. And that's that's super cool. I just wish I had a more interesting upbringing. To, you know, I'm like, I'm German as they come, so I can make sausage real well and, and a lot of it. But. Well, if people
0: want to learn how to make sausage from you and they want to look behind the hood of Hellberg Barbecue, you have started hosting these monthly barbecue mm-hmm. classes out at the Amsler building in downtown Crawford. What's that experience been like?
2: It's been it's been really cool. Um, I I've been very humbled by the response and like the people that, um, that, that sign up and, and spend their money and, you know, most of an afternoon wanting to actually learn from me and listen to what I have to say about barbecue. I, I feel very fortunate to, to get to do it really. Um, and I mean, it's a four hour class. I'm up there spilling out everything that I can possibly give to to the listening people for those, you know, three and a half, four hours of everything that I've learned. Um, I've spent, it, it's it's one of those hobbies uh, and crafts that it's, it's interesting in that you have to dedicate an entire day to a brisket cook. And a lot of people can't do that, or they get very limited chances to do that. And so Repetition strengthens and confirms, and that's how we get better at things. But if you can only smoke a brisket maybe once a month, it's going to be really difficult to uh, continuously improve. So, my hope is that I just help people skip a lot of wasted time and money and heartache on dedicating a whole day to something that that ends up. I want you to have good results. Basically, if you're going to spend, you know, briskets expensive, you know, if you're going to buy a prime brisket, you're probably spending eighty to a hundred dollars and then, you know, at least probably 10 to 12 hours, uh, preparing and cooking that thing, I want you to be happy with the outcome. And I can just help you get there a lot faster and, you know, skip some of the hard lessons that I had to learn along the way and, and frustrations, you know, cause anytime I would go do a cook and it wasn't better than the last one that I did, I would be all over myself about it, you know? And I know like a lot of people are like that too. So
0: What a great opportunity to get to learn from one of the up-and-coming stars in the Texas barbecue constellation. Phil Hellberg is the pitmaster of Hellberg Barbecue out there in Valley Mills. It's a great drive, 15, 20 minutes from downtown Waco. Beautiful space you got there, and it seems like every time I go to Hellberg, it's more crowded than it was the last time. So congrats to Yvette and you and the whole team on your success, and thank you for coming on Downtown Depot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Phil Hellberg of Hellberg Barbecue and to you for tuning in to episode 133 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me in between episodes on Facebook and Instagram at Waco Business News. And catch me here on the third Friday of September for another conversation with an inspiring small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot where we track the ins and outs of Waco business.